You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Good morning. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and herald a pro- they proclaimed a herald aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is this true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more 
than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's orders were urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed these men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. No smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree: any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, good morning. Uh, it's great to be with you. I add my voice to the others and uh, just say thanks for joining us uh, online uh, this morning. And I'm glad to be with you. And I'm also glad just that we can uh, get back to our study of Daniel. After a, a week off, we'll be looking at uh, Daniel this week. So we're going to be in Daniel 3, which Eileen just read for us. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit about chapter 2 first to make a connection from what we studied two weeks ago to what we just read. Uh, in chapter 2, we find that Nebuchadnezzar has this dream that Daniel interprets for him. And in the dream, uh, it's a dream of this massive figure, uh, this massive figure in which Nebuchadnezzar is the golden head. Uh, it's a, sort of this vision of a statue that he has. And then in chapter 3, we see the king actually builds a statue. And so there's this connection between the two. So what I'm going to do, since Eileen read the passage for us, is I'm going to look at three different sections uh, referencing a number of verses in it and see how it flows uh, with this picture of the huge, massive statue that all are required to worship. So the first seven verses uh, is about bow or die. That's the first 
passage, bow or you die. The obvious connection between the two chapters is the image. Now, whereas in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision that is, uh, that is gold only in the head, he builds a statue where the entire figure is gold. It's 90 feet tall. It's nine feet across. Uh, and the entire statue is to be worshipped. It's very obvious he didn't get the point of the dream in chapter 2. The point of the dream in chapter 2 is that, yes, he is the king at this point. He's been made king by God, and he's represented by the gold. But there's a kingdom coming after him that will be represented by stone. It's the kingdom of God that will last forever. So he should be acknowledging God, thanking God for sparing him, but he instead is demanding that the kingdom worship him. Now, the story doesn't tell us exactly what the image represents. Some people think that the image is the king himself, but verse 14 indicates that that's probably not the case. In verse 14, he says, you know, you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've made. So it sounds like probably there's something about the image that represents his gods. Uh, It likely represents himself in some way, and it likely represents the state of Babylon. So it's it's an image of the king, his state, his national gods. Uh, As one commentator said, there's one king, one empire, one official faith, and they're all symbolized by this massive golden statue. Um, this is a time for the kingdom to be unified in worship. Uh, there's this lengthy list of people who show up, these satraps, these prefects. All the civil servants are gathered to worship the image of the kingdom. It's this moment of patriotism, nationalism uh, beyond that. It's this moment of worship where all the people are going to gather around together. And there's this variety of musical instruments which are listed multiple times. So the image is all the people all the instruments, all for the kingdom and the glory of Babylon and its king, Nebuchadnezzar. There's this universal fanfare so that at one moment in time, it's sort of organized and choreographed that everyone will hit the ground and bow before the statue. And added as an incentive to the worship of the statue, we find in verse 6, whoever does not fall down in worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Uh, One author said, you will toast the king or you will toast yourself. Uh, That is the only option here. So bow or die before the king and the national invincible power of almighty Babylon. Well, verses 8 through 18, we see there's no bowing, at least for the three sort of uh, primary uh, characters in this story. Some people come and they make a report to Nebuchadnezzar. It says that it's a malicious accusation against the Jews. And these people come and say, hey, there's certain Jews that you've appointed in areas of responsibility in the province. And these Jews, well, they aren't paying attention to you, Nebuchadnezzar. They do not, quote, serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is enraged and he calls to see them. He asks them, is it true? And then he offers them a chance to recant. He, he says to them, listen, 
Uh, if you will, when the music sounds, if you will fall down before the statue uh, and worship, you will be spared. In other words, he's kind of giving them a second opportunity. He's saying to them, look, uh, I, I, there may be a misunderstanding here. I don't know what it is. Your God made me the king, by the way. So this, it's probably worth uh, your just bowing down. I mean, we don't need to make any statements here. Uh, we don't, uh, you don't want to waste your life and lose your life over a little religious intolerance. You can keep your God. Uh, but just bow down to my God, our gods as well. And by the way, if you don't, he says, uh, who's going to deliver you from my hand? Uh, what God uh, will deliver you out of my hand? Verse 15. Let's look back at their response because it's, it's really heroic. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They refuse him. And they answer his question, what God will deliver you? They say, well, our God is able to deliver us. He can deliver us from this. But even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods. Even if he doesn't, we will not bow to this image. They are prepared to die rather than bow before a statue. Have you ever wondered how you would do in a moment like that? I mean, I've wondered that. I've I've mentally placed myself, maybe not in this image, but in some other situation where I'm told if you just recant, you can live. Um, but if you won't recant, you will die. What, have you ever thought, what would you do in that situation? I mean, I think the temptation to rationalize would be huge. Okay, I could just bow to the statue once. I don't mean it in my heart. Cross my fingers. You know, it doesn't count. And then I can go on and live my life for God and be a big influence in Babylon. How, what kind of influence am I going to be if I'm dead? You know, it's just one little small thing. Maybe it's, I can still go on and do great things for the kingdom. God would surely forgive a sin like this. Do you think that's what you would do? Or facing the moment of martyrdom, do you think you would stand firm and confess Christ, even if it cost you your very life? Well, here's the good news. Most everyone watching this right now will never face that choice. You'll never likely likely you will never be told to worship another God, to deny Christ, or lose your life in that moment. The reality is our challenge is not martyrdom. Our challenge is to stay faithful to our God when we're faced with temptation to bow to idols all day long. We're tempted all day to turn to a thousand gods that provide escape for our hearts. We're, we're tempted when we feel empty, when we feel insecure, when we feel nervous, anxious, or afraid, uh, when we feel angry, when we feel lonely, when we feel bored, we're, we are challenged to turn to a lot of different places. See, idolatry is not just a 90-foot statue and bowing to it. Idolatry is when we turn to anyone or anything when God is not enough for us. When God doesn't satisfy and we look elsewhere. So when we think of it that way, it may not be statues, but there are a thousand escapes, aren't there, that we all can face in our moments. Alcohol, drugs, 
How about food? You're cooped up now for days on end, uh, and you made your Costco run, and for the glory of God, elbowed everybody out of the way so that you could get your stuff for the week. And you're sitting there bored, and there's all this food to find comfort in, or entertainment, or money, or pride, or pornography. There are many places that we go when our hearts are empty. And one thing I think about the season that we're in right now is that this is a season that really reveals for us, to each of us, if we're honest, uh, some of the unhealthy aspects of our soul. I mean, some of the spiritual toxins are coming to the surface right now when we're cooped up uh, with loved ones or maybe we're isolated alone for a while. The reality, what we really crave to feel satisfaction is being revealed in these days. Our idols are on display. What do I depend on for security? What do I depend on for joy and happiness? Where do I go when things don't feel right. I'll tell you one place I go and that many of us can go and it's being revealed in a season like that, this is the God of control. Everybody here, someone say, I'm a control freak. Uh, well, that, that really polishes it up nicely. Really being a control freak is a, it's having a 90 foot statue of myself, not Nebuchadnezzar, but myself and my kingdom that I bow down to. I want to be in control of the situations. And, and if the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us anything, it's that we're not in control. We may have felt in control, but we're not in control. We are vulnerable. We are not in control of our health. We're not in control of our financial well-being. I mean, just a, a couple of weeks ago, life seemed so predictable for us so manageable. For some of us, it was going well, and it felt like we've kind of got a control on managing the situations of our life, and yet now we've lost control. We realize we don't have control of our jobs, many of us. Many of us, there are some in the congregation that won't be going to work Monday because you've lost your job, and others of us don't know about our job, or we're awaiting, uh, you know, a, a cutback Um, or perhaps looking at a financial setback, even if we have a job. Uh, We we don't have control over our school. Uh, The kids who are in school are now home. We don't have control over our recreation. We don't have control over our social relationships. We don't have our control over our church. You're watching this on a screen right now because we are not gathered. We can't control even something as simple as gathering at a church building. I heard on a news report um, about, uh, you know, all of the hoarding that's going on. And they had a psychologist who was commenting on, in particular, the hoarding of uh, toilet paper. And this person was saying that really what that's all about is having something to feel like I'm in control of. And then that leads to a panic. You're at the store and somebody's got a grocery cart full of toilet paper. Well, I better get some too. And it's sort of infectious. But there's this sense of I want to be in control. And if this is the only thing I can control, I've lost control of everything else. If this is it, at least I am managing this. 
the reality is we're not in control. That even something as small as a virus, and I'm not saying it's not a big deal. Obviously, the pandemic is a big deal. But it's not a cancer big deal, this virus. 80% of the people that get it will have minimal symptoms and will recover without any medical intervention whatsoever. Uh, I, I think the number is like one in eight will be hospitalized. So that's very, that's very serious. People will die. That's very serious. But this is, this is upending everything about our lives. And it just shows us that the control that we think we have is an illusion. I don't know if you've seen on social media, but recently there are celebrities uh, that are sort of doing the world a favor, um, wink, wink, by, uh, by either by video or, you know, live streaming or doing brief stories about life at home because they're suffering, like everybody else, uh, cooped up in their house, especially if you're in California, you're in total lockdown. And uh, some of their posts and pics have sort of backfired because as they've shown areas of their house uh, enduring the pandemic uh, lockdown, uh, people have seen maybe in their house in the way they haven't before. So there's been, you know, a celebrity, I won't mention names, but a celebrity, you know, sort of doing a live feed from their kitchen. And their kitchen's the size of the auditorium I'm standing in right now. It's a little bit hard for people to feel sorry for them in, in that moment. Or I saw one with someone standing in their backyard, and the comment was, their backyard's the size of a football field. Uh, and so there was this sense of, wow, look at how they live. But the irony of it is, even though they have extreme success and live in you know, these sort of massive homes, the reality is they're stuck just like you and me. And the control that they felt they had over their career, over their travel, over partying with big shots, uh, it was all an illusion. Now they may have a nice house uh, and they may have some toilet paper, but the reality is they're sitting around in their sweats in a cage like you and I are as well. They can't even control uh, the most powerful the most famous, the most wealthy among us have lost control. Now, I don't want to, I'm not talking about idolatry. The idolatry of a control is, any, is a means of kicking anyone while they're down. I mean, last week we talked about fear, and I said that I believe fear is a very understandable, um, reasonable, it makes sense to respond with fear and anxiety. And I would also say it makes sense that at a time like this when we lose control, we would feel that craving to have some kind of control over our schedule, our lives. Again, I, I understand. I feel it. Uh, I'm not try, again, I'm not trying to bash anybody that's wrestling with those sort of uh, temptations right now because I feel them as well, and they're very real. I'm just saying that, uh, that our fight is not martyrdom as theirs. It's the battle of faith. It's the battle of faith when we've lost control. In her commentary on Daniel about this passage in particular, Wendy Witter writes this, Perhaps the most pervasive idol is human autonomy. The right to do what we want, how we want, when we want, with whomever we want. If something makes us happy, we're entitled to it. If something makes us unhappy, we're entitled to get rid of it. Human autonomy is the God of gods. And we worship it fervently. Well, we've lost some autonomy, haven't we? And what it reveals to us, for many of us, is something that I, that I didn't know was so important and so valuable and so necessary for me to feel 
right about life. When faced with trusting, in this case, a human authority, they, or bowing down to the statue, they choose God. They, they don't go to an idol, even though it offered a way of escape. You can live if you bow. They didn't take the way of escape, which was the way of death. They trusted God. And so in many ways for us as well, there's all kinds of cheap escapes, but ultimately we only find our life in God. They take the attitude of Job who says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. So bow or die, no bowing. And the third section is no death. Verses 19 to 30. Nebuchadnezzar is filled with fury. He, he orders that the furnace be heated up seven times as hot. Seven times. It's, it's, I don't know how that really works and how they measured that. I think seven's a number of completion. It's just a hyperbolic statement about it is hot as a hot furnace. Uh, it is hot. And they bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fully clothed. They toss them into the furnace. And ironically, here's what happens. The individuals that drop them in the furnace, they burn and die. The executioners are executed. Uh, and those who are receiving capital punishment live. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar is astonished. He rises up. And in verse 25, he says this. He answered and said, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He then goes to the door. He calls them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And then here's what's so interesting. All the civil servants, the satraps, the prefects, the magistrates, all those various individuals, they all gather, and it's not to see a statue or bow before a statue, but they come and see these who, quote, the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. They come to see those who've been rescued from the fire. Um, he blesses God who sent an angel, and he says he blesses God for these men, verse 28, yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. This is crazy. Here is the pagan king now saying he honors them for not bowing before his statue. He honors them for God has rescued. Then he decrees that anyone who speaks against their God will be torn limb from limb. This guy doesn't know any moderation whatsoever. You don't bow, you get thrown into the furnace. You say anything bad about Yahweh, your limbs get ripped off. Uh, and so this guy is extreme in all his rulings, uh, but it's an indescribable victory. And the first readers of this passage who were in exile themselves, you can see how they would have felt such a urging and such a, a confidence to remain faithful because God is faithful to his people. Well, how do we apply a passage like this? I've tried to make some, uh, some applications generally about the theme of idolatry. Uh, worshiping uh, s someone or something other than God. But I think there's a couple of other applications here in this text. One is that Christ is with the suffering. If this text tells us anything, it's that God is with us in our suffering. We are not alone. 
Who is the figure now that, uh, this is a big question, theological question, who is the figure that is one who has the appearance of a son of the gods, is what Nebuchadnezzar says. Um, There's one in there that's a divine being. Who is that? Some people think this is an angel, an angelic being. Some people think it's actually a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, This is called a Christophany, that Christ appears before his actual birth that we read about in the New Testament. So I don't think the text tells us, is it an angelic being? Is it Christ himself? I don't think we can build a case from the language of a pagan king who says he sees one like the son of God or sons of God. But either way, the point is the same, that in their suffering, God shows up with them in the fire. This is so important for us to consider in these days ourselves, so important. God doesn't keep his people out of the fire. There's no promise that he'll keep us out of the fire. Rather, he goes to the fire and meets us in the fire. He comes alongside his people in the fire. And you may feel like you're in a fire now. A fire is an image of tribulation and suffering. Very likely you feel uh, some kind of suffering right now. And this text communicates to us in no uncertain terms that God sends help. And he is actually with his people in the fire. I love Isaiah 43, verses 1 and 2. They really reflect the heart of this passage. It says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. That's a good verse to be meditating on in these days. Isaiah 53, I'm sorry, 43 verses 1 and 2. Uh, In his commentary on Daniel, Dale Ralph Davis writes, he thinks it is Christ, an image, I mean, a pre-incarnate Christ in the fire. He says, Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal, in the loss that the fourth man comes and walks with you. He has the knack of both exposing you to, yet keeping you through. That's it. Exposing us to, but keeping us through waters and rivers and fire, Isaiah 43, and operating rooms and funeral parlors and an empty house. The fourth man can always find his people. I looked into the furnace, Nebuchadnezzar says, and there's one, a fourth one in there. Didn't we put three? There's a fourth one in the fire, and he is like a son of the gods. God always comes and finds his people in the fire. How do we know that? How do we know that God is always with us in our suffering? Well, I think the greater image is not the image of the fourth one in the fire. The greater image is Christ suffering for us. Christ is with us in our suffering, but also Christ suffers for us. As wonderful as it is that Jesus is with us by his spirit in our suffering and in these days, Emmanuel, God with us, as wonderful as that is, there's an even greater truth in scripture. There's something greater than Jesus with you. And it's Jesus for you. 
1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He died for us. In other words, he's not just with us in our suffering, but in the greatest suffering, eternal suffering, he substituted himself for us. He's not just with us in difficulty. He took the greatest punishment in our place. And this fourth one who comes to rescue these three, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, is a type of Christ. It is a type of God's rescue that he comes for us. And that even though we are sinners, even though we have bowed down to countless statues, even though we have bowed down to many idols of false security, though we have tried various means of escape to get away from God. The reality is that God has never forsaken us. We have forsaken him and he has never forsaken us. He has never forsaken us as Christians. And that is because he forsook his own son. Jesus never forsakes us. The father never forsakes us because instead he forsook his own son. God judged Jesus who was perfect. Jesus never bowed down to a statue. Jesus never worshiped another God. Jesus never had a moment when he worshiped any God but the true God, his father, Yahweh. And he never broke the first commandment. He never broke any commandment. And while we deserve to be judged for our chasing many different idols and God substitutes, Jesus is judged in our place. Jesus dies in our place. He's not only with us in suffering, he's going before us on his own, all alone. God is with us in suffering, but nobody was with Jesus in his suffering. He cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father actually forsook the son because he was taking our sins upon himself, the son, and he was punished in our place. Jesus is alone in his suffering so that we are never alone in our suffering. Jesus suffered for us so that now he's always accompanying us, suffering with us. And God is giving us a season, I believe, a time to recognize our need and to turn to him. I keep hearing this is an unprecedented season. This is an unprecedented event. And I believe that. I believe it's unprecedented. Certainly in my lifetime, I haven't experienced anything like this. But I believe it's an unprecedented time for us to know God, to meet Christ, and to grow in him. God is giving us a season to reveal to us, to expose our hearts of what are we really trusting in and calling us afresh to trust in him. You only find that in the fire. I only find that in the suffering. This is a gracious opportunity of God to draw us to himself, to to comfort us, to strengthen us, to turn our thinking afresh to the cross. If you've never met Christ, have never trusted him, God wants to grab your attention through the suffering that, that the country, that the world is experiencing and draw you to his son. If you are a Christian, it's time to turn afresh to the cross and say, yes, Jesus suffered for me in the cross and and, and rose for me in the resurrection. And I know he is now with me and will sustain me in my suffering. You know, one last idea. Rob's going to come and pray for us in a minute. But one last idea. I haven't mentioned public faith. Uh, the, the whole series is called Public Faith. But it was through the fire 
that provided Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego their greatest moment of witness. Their greatest witness was not when they were just ruling in Babylon. Their greatest witness was this event. Listen to verse 28, and I'll close here. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other god except their own god. Their greatest moment of witness, pointing people to God, was in the midst of their suffering, not choosing an idol, but choosing their God no matter what the cost. God rescued and delivered them, and that was announced as good news. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.